On the Tragedies of Shakespeare by Charles Lamb. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie von Wallachem. On the Tragedies of Shakespeare. Considered with a reference to their fitness for stage representation. By Charles Lamb. Taking a turn the other day in the abbey, I was struck with the affected attitude of a figure which I do not remember to have seen before, and which, upon examination, proved to be a whole length of the celebrated Mr. Garrick. Though I would not go so far with some good Catholics abroad, as to shut plays altogether out of consecrated ground, yet I own I was not a little scandalized at the introduction of theatrical airs and gestures into a play set apart to remind us of the saddest realities. Going nearer, I found inscribed under this harlequin figure the following lines, To paint fair nature by divine command, her magic pencil in his glowing hand was Shakespeare rose, then, to expand his fame, wide o'er this breathing world, a garret came. Though sunk in death, the forms of poet drew, the actor's genius bade them breathe anew. So, like the bard himself in night, they lay, immortal Garrick called them back to day, until eternity with power sublime shall mark the mortal hour of hoary time, Shakespeare and Garrick, like twin stars, shall shine, and earth irradiate with a beam divine. It would be an insult to my readers' understandings to attempt anything like a criticism on this farrago of false thoughts and nonsense, but the reflection it led me into was a kind of wonder how, from the days of the actor here celebrated to our own, it should have been the fashion to compliment every performer in his turn that has luck to please the town in any of the great characters of Shakespeare with the notion of possessing a mind congenial with the poet. How people should come thus unaccountably to confound the power of originating poetical images and conceptions with the faculty of being able to read or recite the same when put into words— Nor of author, it is observable that we fall into this confusion only in dramatic recitations. We never dream that a gentleman who reads Lucretius in public with great applause is therefore a great poet and philosopher. Nor do we find that Tom Davis, the bookseller, who is recorded to have recited The Paradise Lost better than any man in England in his day, though I cannot help thinking there must be some mistake in this tradition, was therefore by his intimate friends set upon a level with Milton. End of author's note. Or what connection, that absolute mastery of the heart and soul of man, which a great dramatic poet possesses, has with those low tricks upon the eye and ear, which a player, by observing a few general effects, which some common passion, as grief, anger, etc., usually has upon the gestures and exterior, can so easily compass. To know the eternal workings and movements of a great mind, of an Othello or a Hamlet, for instance, the when and the why and how far they should be moved, to what pitch a passion is becoming, to give the reins and to pull in the curb exactly at the moment when the drawing in or the slacking is most graceful, seems to demand the reach of intellect of a vastly different extent, 
from that which is employed upon the bare imitation of the signs of these passions in countenance or gesture, which signs are usually observed to be most lively and emphatic in the weaker sort of minds, and which signs can, after all, but indicate some passion, as I said before, anger or grief generally. But of the motives and grounds of the passion, wherein it differs from the same passion in low and vulgar natures, of these the actor can give no more idea by his face or gesture than the eye, without a metaphor, can speak, or the muscles utter intelligibly sounds. But such is the instantaneous nature of the impressions which you take in of the eye and ear at a playhouse, compared with the slow apprehension oftentimes of the understanding in reading, that we are apt not only to sing the playwriter in the consideration which we pay to the actor, but even to identify in our minds in a perverse manner the actor with the character which he represents. It is difficult for a frequent playgoer to disembarrass the idea of Hamlet from the person and voice of Mr. Kay. We speak of Lady Macbeth, while we are in reality thinking of Mrs. S., nor is this confusion incidental alone to unlettered persons, who, not possessing the advantage of reading, are necessarily dependent upon the stage-player for all the pleasure which they can receive from the drama, and to whom the very idea of what an author is cannot be made comprehensible without some pain and perplexity of mind. The error is one from which persons otherwise not merely lettered find it almost impossible to extricate themselves. Never let me be so ungrateful as to forget the very high degree of satisfaction which I received some years back from seeing for the first time a tragedy of Shakespeare performed, in which of these two great performers sustained the principal parts. It seemed to embody and realize conceptions which had hitherto assumed no distinct shape. But dearly do we pay all our life after for this juvenile pleasure, this sense of distinctness. When the novelty is past, we find to our cost that instead of realizing an idea, we have only materialized and brought down a fine vision to the standard of flesh and blood. We have let go a dream in quest of an unattainable substance. How cruelly this operates upon the mind to have its free conceptions thus cramped and pressed down to the measure of a straight-lacing actuality may be judged from the delightful sensation of freshness with which we turn to those plays of Shakespeare, which have escaped being performed, and to those passages in the acting plays of the same writer, which have happily been left out in performance. How far the very custom of hearing anything spouted, withers and blows upon a fine passage, may be seen in those speeches from Henry V, etc., which are current in the mouths of schoolboys, from their being to be found in Enfield Speakers, and such kind of books." I confess myself utterly unable to appreciate that celebrated soliloquy in Hamlet beginning to be or not to be, or to tell whether it be good, bad, or indifferent. It has been so handled and poured about by declamatory boys and men, and torn so inhumanly from its living place and principle of continuity in the play, till it has become to me a perfect dead member. It may seem a paradox but I cannot help being of opinion that the plays of Shakespeare are less calculated for performance on the stage than those of almost any other dramatist whatever. Their distinguished excellence is a reason that they should be so. There is so much in them 
which comes not under the province of acting, with which eye and tone and gesture have nothing to do. The glory of the scenic art is to personate passion and the turns of passion, and the more coarse and palpable the passion is, the more hold upon the eyes and ears of the spectators the performer obviously possesses. For this reason, scalding scenes, scenes where two persons talk themselves into a fit of fury, and then, in a surprising manner, talk themselves out of it again, have always been the most popular upon our stage. And the reason is plain, because the spectators are here most palpably appealed to. They are the proper judges in this war of words. They are the legitimate ring that should be formed round such intellectual prize-fighters. Talking is a direct object of the imitation here. But in all the best dramas, and in Shakespeare above all, how obvious it is that the forms of speaking, whether it be in soliloquy or dialogue, is only a medium and often a highly artificial one for putting the reader or spectator into possession of that knowledge of the inner structure and workings of mind in a character which he could otherwise never have arrived at in that form of composition by any gift short of intuition. We do here as we do with novels written in the epistolary form. How many improprieties, perfect solecisms in letter-writing, do we put up with in Clarissa and other books, for the sake of the delight which that form upon the whole gives us? But the practice of stage representation reduces everything to controversy of elocution. Every character, from the boisterous blasphemings of Bazet to the shrinking timidity of womanhood, must play the orator. The love dialogues of Romeo and Juliet, those silver-sweet sounds of lovers' tongues by night, the more intimate and sacred sweetness of nuptial colloquy between an Othello or a Posthumus with their married wives, all those delicacies which are so delightful in the reading, as when we read of those youthful dalliances in paradise, as beseemed fair couple linked in happy nuptial league alone. By the inherent fault of stage representation, how are these things sullied and turned from their very nature by being exposed to a large assembly? When such speeches as Imogen addresses to a lord come drawling out of the mouth of a hired actress, whose courtship, though normally addressed to the personated posthumous, is manifestly aimed at the spectators, who are to judge of her endearments and her returns of love. The character of Hamlet is perhaps that by which, since the days of Batterton, a succession of popular performers have had the greatest ambition to distinguish themselves. The length of the part may be one of their reasons, but for the character itself we find it in a play, and therefore we judge it a fit subject of dramatic representation. The play itself abounds in maxims and reflections beyond any other, and therefore we consider it as a proper vehicle for conveying moral instruction. But Hamlet himself! What does he suffer, meanwhile, by being dragged forth as a public schoolmaster to give lectures to the crowd? Why, nine parts and ten of what Hamlet does are transactions between himself and his moral sense— they are the effusions of his solitary musings, which he retires to holes and corners in the most sequestered parts of the palace to pour forth. Or rather, they are the silent meditations with which his bosom is bursting, reduced to words for the sake of the reader, who must else remain ignorant of what is passing there. These profound sorrows, 
These light and nose-boring ruminations, which if the tongue scare dares utter to deaf walls and chambers, how can they be represented by a gesticulating actor who comes and mounts them out before an audience, making four hundred people his confidence at once? I say not that it is a fault of the actor so to do. He must pronounce them, or a rotundo. He must accompany them with his eye. He must insinuate them into his auditory by some trick of eye, tone, or gesture, or he fails. He must be thinking all the while of his appearance, because he knows that all the while the spectators are judging of it. And this is a way to represent the shy, negligent, retiring Hamlet, it is true that there is no other mode of conveying a vast quantity of thought and feeling to a great portion of the audience, who otherwise would never earn it for themselves by reading, and the intellectual acquisition gained this way may, for aught I know, be inestimable. But I am not arguing that Hamlet should not be acted, but how much Hamlet is made another thing by being acted. I have heard much of the wonders which Garrick performed in this part, but as I never saw him, I must have leave to doubt whether the representation of such a character came within the province of his art. Those who tell me of him speak of his eye, of the magic of his eye, and of his commanding voice, physical properties, vastly desirable in an actor, and without which he can never insinuate meaning into an auditory. But what have they to do with Hamlet? What have they to do with intellect? In fact, the things aimed at in theatrical representation are to rest the spectator's eye upon the form and the gesture, and so to gain a more favourable hearing to what is spoken. It is not what the character is, but how he looks, not what he says, but how he speaks it. I see no reason to think that if the play of Hamlet were written over again by some such writer as Banks or Lillo, retaining the process of the story, but totally omitting all the poetry of it, all the divine features of Shakespeare, his stupendous intellect, and only taking care to give us enough of passion dialogue, which Banks or Lillo were never at a loss to furnish, I see not how the effect could be much different upon an audience, nor how the actor has it in his power to represent Shakespeare to us differently from his representation of Bangs or Lillo. Hamlet would still be a youthful, accomplished prince, and must be gracefully personated. He might be puzzled in his mind, wavering in his conduct, seemingly cruel to Ophelia. He might see ghost, and start at it, and address it kindly when he found it to be his father. All this— in the poorest and most homely language of the servilest creepy after nature that ever consulted the palate of an audience, without troubling Shakespeare for the matter, and I see not but there would be room for all the power which an actor has to display itself. All the passions and changes of passions might remain, for those are much less difficult to write or act than a sort. It is a trick easy to be attained. It is but rising or falling a note or two in the voice, a whisper, with a significant foreboding look to announce his approach, and so contagious the counterfeit appearance of any emotion is, that let the words be what they will, the look and tone shall carry it off, and make it pass for deep skill in the passions. It is common for people to talk of Shakespeare's play being so natural, that everybody can understand him. 
They are natural indeed. They are grounded deep in nature, so deep that the death of them lies out of the reach of most of us. You shall hear the same person say that George Barnwell is very natural, and Othello is very natural, that they are both very deep, and to them they are the same kind of thing. At the one they sit and shed tears, because a good sort of young man is tempted by a naughty woman to commit a trifling peccadillo, the murder of an uncle or so, that is all, and so comes to an untimely end, which is so moving, and at the other, because a blackamoor in a fit of jealousy kills his innocent white wife, and the odds are that ninety-nine out of hundred would willingly behold the same catastrophe happen to both the heroes, and have thought the rope more due to Othello than to Barnwell. For of the texture of Othello's mind, the inward construction marvellously laid open with all its strengths and weaknesses, its heroic confidences and its human misgivings, its agonies of hate springing from the depths of love, they see no more than the spectators at the cheap parade, who pay their pennies apiece, to look through the man's telescope in Leicesterfields, to see into the inward plot and topography of the moon. Some dim thing, or rather, they see, they see an actor personating a passion of grief or anger, for instance, and they recognize it as a copy of the hugely external effects of such passions, or at least as being true to that symbol of the emotion which passes current at the theatre for it, for it is often no more than that. But of the grounds of the passion, its correspondence to a great or heroic nature, which is the only worthy object of tragedy, that common auditors know anything of this, or can have any such notions dinned into them by the mere strength of an actor's lungs, that apprehensions foreign to them should be thus infused into them by storm, I can neither believe nor understand how it can be possible. We talk of Shakespeare's admirable observation of life, when we should feel that not from a petty inquisition into those cheap and everyday characters which surrounded him, as they surround us, but from his own mind which was, to borrow a phrase of Ben Jonson's, the very sphere of humanity, he fetched those images of virtue and of knowledge, of which every one of us, recognising a part, think we comprehend in our natures a who, and oftentimes mistake the powers, which he positively creates in us, for nothing more than indigenous faculties of our own minds, which only waited for the action of corresponding virtues in him to return a full and clear echo of the same. To return to Hamlet. Among the distinguishing features of that wonderful character, one of the most interesting yet painful, is a soreness of mind which makes him treat the intrusions of Polonius with harshness, and that asperity which he puts on in his interviews with Ophelia. These tokens of an unhinged mind, if they be not mixed in the latter case with the profound artifice of love, to alienate Ophelia by affected discourtesies, and to prepare her mind for the breaking off of that loving intercourse which can no longer find a place amidst business so serious, as that which he has to do, a part of his character, which, to reconcile with our admiration of Hamlet, the most patient consideration of his situation is no more than necessary. They are what we forgive afterwards, and explain by the whole of his character, but at the time they are harsh and unpleasant. Yet such is the actor's necessity of giving strong blows to the audience, that I have never seen a player in this character, 
we did not exaggerate and strain to the utmost these ambiguous features, these temporary deformities of the character. They make him express a vulgar scorn at Polonius, which utterly degrades his gentility, and which no explanation can render palatable. They make him show contempt and curl up the nose at Ophelia's father, contempt in its very grossest and most hateful form, but they get applause by it. It is natural, people say. That is, the words are scornful, and the actor expresses scorn, and that they can judge of. But why so much scorn, and of that sort, they never think of asking? So to Ophelia, all the hamlets that I have ever seen rant and rave at her, as if she had committed some great crime, and the audience are highly pleased, because the words of the part are satirical, and they are enforced by the strongest expression of satirical indignation, of which the face and voice are capable. But then, whether Hamlet is likely to have put on such brutal appearances to a lady whom he loved so dearly, is never thought on. The truth is, that in all such deep affections as had subsisted between Hamlet and Ophelia, there is a stock of supererogatory love, if I may venture to use the expression, which in any great grief of heart, especially where that which preys upon the mind cannot be communicated, confers a kind of indulgence upon the grieved party to express itself, even to its heart's dearest object in the language of a temporary alienation. But it is not alienation, it is a distraction purely, and so it always makes itself to be felt by that object. It is not anger, but grief, assuming the appearance of anger, love awkwardly counterfeiting hate, a sweet countenances when they try to frown. But such sternness and fierce disgust, as Hamlet is made to show, is no counterfeit, but a real phase of absolute aversion, of irreconcilable alienation. It may be said he puts on the madman, but then he should only so far put on this counterfeit lunacy, as his own real distraction will give him leave, that is, incompletely, imperfectly, not in that confirmed, practised way, like a master of his art, or as Dame Quickly would say, like one of those harlotry players. I mean no disrespect to any actor, but the sort of pleasure which Shakespeare's plays give in the acting seems to me not at all to differ from that which the audience receive from those of other writers, and they being in themselves essentially so different from all others— I must conclude that there is something in the nature of acting which levels all distinctions, and in fact, who does not speak indifferently of the gamester and of Macbeth as fine stage performances, and praise the Mrs. Beverley in the same way as the Lady Macbeth of Mrs. Ayres? Bavadera and Callista and Isabella and Euphrasia are they less liked than Imogene, or than Juliet, or than Desdemona? Are they not spoken of and remembered in the same way? Is not a female performer as great, as he call it, in one as in the other? Did not Garrick shine, and was not he ambitious of shining in every drawling tragedy that his wretched day produced, the productions of the Hills and the Murphys and the Browns? And shall he have that honour to dwell in our minds forever as an inseparable concomitant with Shakespeare? A kindred mind! Oh, who can read that affecting sonnet of Shakespeare which alludes to his profession as a player? Oh, for my sake, do you with fortune chide, the guilty goddess of my harmful deeds, that did not better for my life provide than public means, which public custom breeds. Thence comes in that my name receives a brand, 
as almost then my nature is subdued to what it works in, like the dyer's hand. Or that other confession. Alas, tis true, I have gone here and there, and made myself a motley to thy view, gored my own thoughts, sought cheap what is most dear. Who can read these instances of jealous self-watchfulness in our sweet Shakespeare, and dream of any congeniality between him and one that, by every tradition of him, appears to have been as mere a player as ever existed, to have had his mind tainted with the lowest player's vices, envy and jealousy and miserable cravings after applause, one who, in the exercise of a profession, was jealous even of the woman performers that stood in his way, a manager full of managerial tricks and strategism and finesse, that any resemblance should be dreamed of between him and Shakespeare, Shakespeare who, in the plenitude and consciousness of his own powers, could with that noble modesty which we can neither imitate nor appreciate, express himself thus of his own sense of his own defects. Wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope. I am almost disposed to deny to Garrick the merit of being an admirer of Shakespeare, a true lover of his excellences. He certainly was not. For would any true lover of them have admitted into his matchless scenes such rival trash as Tate and Kibber and the rest of them that, with their darkness durst to front his light, have voiced it into the acting plays of Shakespeare? I believe it impossible that he could have had a proper reverence for Shakespeare and have condescended to go through that interpolated scene in Richard III in which Richard tries to break his wife's heart by telling her he loves another woman and says, if she survives this, she is immortal. Yet I doubt not he delivered this vulgar stuff with as much anxiety of emphasis as any of the genuine parts, and for acting it is as well calculated as any. But we have seen the parts of Richard lately produce great fame to an actor by his manner of playing it, and it lets us into the secret of acting and of popular judgments of Shakespeare derived from acting. Not one of the spectators who have witnessed Mrs. C.'s exertions in that part, but has come away with the proper conviction that Richard is a very wicked man and kills little children in their beds, with something like the pleasure which the giant and ogres in children's books are represented to have taken in their practice. Moreover, that he is very close and shrewd and devilish cunning, for you could see that by his eye. But is in fact this the impression we have in reading the Richard of Shakespeare? Do we feel anything like disgust, as we do have that butcher-like representation of him that passes for him on the stage? A horror at his crimes blends with the effect which we feel. But how is it qualified, how is it carried off by the rich intellect which he displays, his resources, his wit? his buoyant spirit, his vast knowledge and insight into characters, the poetry of his part, not an atom of all which is made perceivable in Mr. C.'s ways of acting it. Nothing but his crimes, his actions, is visible. They are prominent and staring. The murderer stands out, but where is the lofty genius, the man of vast capacity, the profound, the witty, accomplished Richard? The truth is, the characters of Shakespeare are so much the objects of meditation rather than of interest or curiosity as to their actions, 
that while we are reading any of his great criminal characters, Macbeth, Richard, even Iago, we think not so much of the crimes which they commit as of the ambition, the aspiring spirit, the intellectual activity which prompts them to overleap those moral fences. Barnwell is a wretched murderer. There is a certain fitness between his neck and the rope. He is a legitimate heir to the gallows. Nobody who thinks at all can think of any alleviating circumstances in his case to make him a fit object of mercy. Or to take an instance from the higher tragedy, what else but a mere assassin is Glenelvan? Do you think of anything but of the crime which he commits, and the wreck which he deserves? That is all which we really think about him. Whereas in corresponding characters in Shakespeare so little do the actions comparatively affect us, that while the impulses, the inner mind, in all its perverted greatness, solely seems real and is exclusively attended to, the crime is comparatively nothing. But when we see these things represented, the acts which, if they do, are comparatively everything, their impulse is nothing. The state of sublime emotion into which we are elevated, with those images of night and horror which Macbeth is made to utter, that solemn prelude with which he entertains at the time till the bell shall strike which is to call him to murder Duncan. When we no longer read it in a book, when you have given up that fathers' ground of abstraction which reading possesses overseeing, and come to see a man in his bodily shape before our eyes, actually preparing to commit a murder, if the acting be true and impressive, as I have witnessed it in Miss Kay's performance of that part, the painful anxiety about the act, the natural longing to prevent it, while it yet seems unperpetrated, the too close pressing semblance of reality, give a pain and an uneasiness which totally destroy all the delight which the words in the book convey, where the deed doing never presses upon us with a painful sense of presence. It rather seems to belong to history, to something past and inevitable, if it has anything to do with time at all. The sublime images, the poetry alone, is that which is present to our minds in the reading. 